Hello? Hello. Good morning, church. Uh, it's so good to be here with you guys this morning, as, as it always is. Um, and again, I mean that every time. It re- really is great to be here with y'all. Um, my name is TJ. I am kind of an elder in training, in training, if you will. Um, I'm, I'm kind of uh, on the eldership path, uh, not quite an elder or even technically an elder in training, but I'm moving in that direction. Uh, part of that is I get to preach every once in a while. Uh, so I'm very excited to be able to do that with y'all this morning. Um, today we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 through 30, so I will give you a minute to turn there as we continue through our series. Uh, I looked up there as if the projector was on, but it's called Divine Humility. It's a series we've been doing through Philippians, uh, and this week we are in Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 through 30. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Uh, As I said, um, we are continuing in a series we've called uh, Divine Humility. In this series, we're walking through the book of Philippians, which is actually a letter from Paul to the church in Philippi. Uh, Paul helped plant this church in the town of Philippi and is writing to them uh, to to encourage them and to instruct them while he's in prison for sharing the gospel uh, to people who were offended by it. Uh, You see, in in this day and age, in Paul's time, the leaders of the world would often paint themselves as as deities with the divine right to rule. And when Paul comes along saying that uh, he worships and actually knows the true Son of God, who is the ruler of all nations, um, as we were just singing about, uh, actually, uh, that kind of panics some people, right? Like, it it upsets them because (laughs) um, that's supposed to be them. They're supposed to be the divine ruler of the nation. So they want to shut that down as quickly as they can, but, but Paul doesn't give up quite so easily. Even when he's imprisoned, he writes a letter to the church in Philippi to help them to grow, to let them know how he's doing, and to encourage them on their path to glorifying God and advancing the gospel. Uh, Last week, we did take a break from Philippians to celebrate our 10th anniversary, which is exciting, so that's cool. Um, We got to see some new faces that day, some of whom are returning. I won't call you out by name, but it's good to see you. Um, It's good to see you guys again. Um, But uh, yeah, so we're coming back to that. uh, Last, So two weeks ago, JT spoke in the first half of this section, in which Paul tells the Philippian church that he's sending Timothy their way. Uh, and, and in these six verses today, Paul continues with this thought and tells them that he's also sending them Epaphroditus. And like he did with Timothy, Paul explains to the people how important it is that, that Paul sends Epaphroditus. I mean, this guy is like, legit. Like, he's really cool. He's given, he's given a practical help to Paul in, in so many ways, who says it's, in fact, necessary to send Epaphroditus their way. Paul calls this guy a soldier, 
and he worked so hard it, it nearly killed him. And I mean, Paul really loves this guy, but, um, but who, is, who is Epaphroditus, right? <laughs> um, we've, actually, we've actually mentioned him a few times so far in the series, but here's, here's a quick recap. The facts that we know are as follows. In today's passage, Paul gives him very high praise. Uh, he references Epaphroditus as a brother, a, a fellow worker, and again, a fellow soldier, and a minister to Paul's need. And this, this man clearly cares about the church, and not just the church in Philippi, but, but the church, the whole church. And we know this because of what Paul says about him here, but also because of the, the only other passage in the Bible that mentions him by name. Uh, so if you will, turn a couple pages over to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, should just be two or three pages at the most. Um, and this is Philippians 4, 14 through 18. So I'll give you a second to turn there. In Philippians 4, 14 through 18, Paul says this about what it is exactly that Epaphroditus was doing. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. So we now enter the part of the biography that's a little bit uh, uncertain, but only a little bit. Uh, we have to rely a little on context clues here, but this is, this is more than a guess, uh, pretty certain here. Epaphroditus is likely a member of the church at Philippi, um, so he's sort of acting as a courier or, or a delivery man. Uh, this man is bringing gifts from, from the Philippian church directly to Paul. It's most likely that Paul is in Rome at the point where he's writing this during his imprisonment. Uh, note that at the end of this letter, uh, he, he tells the Philippian church that Caesar's household greets them. That's Philippians 4.21, just a few verses after where we just read, in case you want to take notes on that. But that's, that's a pretty significant uh, clue for Paul's location here. Caesar's household, almost certainly living in Rome at the time, uh, so we, we can pretty well pinpoint him there. Uh, there are other factors as well, but this is the most obvious and clear one that puts Paul in Rome at the time of this letter. Uh, fortunately, I actually already did the math for, for this uh, when preparing for a previous sermon in the series, but if Paul is being imprisoned in Rome at this point, the conservative estimate for the distance between him and Philippi is somewhere around 700 miles. Specially trained, high-endurance horses can travel somewhere around 100 miles a day, but most horses tend to cap out around 50 miles a day when you account for breaks and food and water and uh, resting and, and things like that. So that means Epaphroditus would have had to travel at least one week straight, more likely two weeks straight, all by himself, if he's on a horse, which is maybe being generous. Um, based on what we know for sure, the story probably looks something a little bit like this. Paul, wrongfully imprisoned for preaching the gospel, the Philippian church heard about this imprisonment and gathered up some resources to send to Paul in his time of need. 
Then they send Epaphroditus with these resources on a very, very long journey. Regardless of, of Paul's location at the time, it's safe to assume that this was a very, very long journey because by the end of it, Epaphroditus was exhausted and sick before he even got to Paul. And so sick, in fact, that he nearly died. And this act of selflessness is what Paul is referencing here today. Before we dive back into today's passage, uh, I'm going to remind us of something JT pointed out a couple weeks ago, and it's, it's not a coincidence that Paul is mentioning Timothy and Epaphroditus at this point in the letter. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Usually, Paul mentions the people he's sending at the, at the very end of his letters. Uh, feel free to check me on this. If you go through any of the epistles, uh, if you go through Paul's letters and, and read the last chapters, he's typically, what he's typically doing in the last chapters is he's closing with all the people he wants to greet and commend and congratulate, and then he tells the church who, who he's sending, hey, I'm sending so-and-so your way. Uh, so in fact, it's, it's a little unusual that he would mention the people he's sending right in the middle of his letter. And what we actually learned a couple of weeks ago is that the, the likely reason for this is, is Paul's already talking about the characteristics that these men have just a few verses earlier. In fact, the whole second chapter of Philippians it, it kind of is like a, a call and response sort of feel. So Paul gives some hopes for the church in Philippi. He sort of like sets a bar for them and, and tells them how he hopes that they might live. And then he answers a question that he assumes that they're very likely to have, uh, which is how how couldn't we ever hope to do that thing that you've told us to do? Because <laughs> uh, these are big things. Um, brace yourselves. We're actually going to read chapter 2 together right now. Uh, so if you'll go back to the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, uh, we're going to read this, and I'm going to kind of interrupt it a little bit with this call and response kind of feel. But starting Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Pause. How, how can we hope to do that, Paul? That's, that's a big thing to ask of us. And Paul answers, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Pause. Work out our own salvation. How, how, can, how can we hope to do that? Are we, are we to save ourselves? And Paul refutes this, saying, For it is God who works in you, both to will 
and to work for his good pleasure. He continues, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Pause. How, how, are, how are we supposed to do that, Paul? Shine, shine as lights in the darkness and all the while not complaining? That's exactly a thing that someone would complain about, right? <laughs> how, how can we do that? Once again, Paul shows the way. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Pause. Rejoice? Even if you're to be poured out, rejoice with you? This is death language, by the way, the term poured out. Paul's telling them to rejoice even if given the opportunity, if, if he's given the opportunity to die for their faith, Hey, rejoice with me about that. How how are we supposed to do that? And his response is bringing up these men. They're practical examples of what Paul has been teaching them so far in this letter. And they're leaders that Paul trusts to be a good representation of him, yes, and then also, therefore, a good representation of Jesus Christ. He continues, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that, I, that shortly I myself will come also. And then he rolls into today's passage. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now that's, that's a glowing review. If we track this train of thought, Paul is referring to Timothy and Epaphroditus as men to follow in his absence. Verse 29 and 30 say, So receive him in the Lord and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Receive him and honor him. Uh, but first of all, this phrase, what was lacking in your service to me, uh, can come across a bit as, a, as kind of demeaning or passive-aggressive, but uh, it, it, it almost kind of sounds like Paul is saying, well, I'm glad someone came to help me because y'all couldn't, couldn't service me. Well, you know, like, you know, like why, why couldn't you help me out, you know? Um, but that's not, that's not what the phrase means. And we know this because Paul uses the same phrase in his letter to the Colossian church. Um, 
Do we have the, the verses in Helping Hands? Yes. Great. Awesome. Uh, you can look through the app uh, in, in the Helping Hands portion of the app if you want to look at the verses there. Or uh, this is Colossians, so it's actually just a few pages if you want to turn there because um, it's just the next book after Philippians. So this is the first chapter of Colossians, maybe a three-page turn if you're fortunate. But Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 Colossians 1.24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now we know that Paul isn't saying that Jesus' suffering wasn't sufficient for his bride. Paul has a very high view of Christ. There, there's no way that he's indicating that Jesus' suffering just wasn't quite good enough and he needed Paul's help to suffer alongside him in order, in order to atone for the sins of the church. But that, that's just out of the question. That's not what he's saying. So, so what could it mean? What does it mean? How, how can Paul fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? And this phrase, what it actually is doing is it's indicating Practical, physical, tangible proof of loyalty to a cause. Again, he, he's, it's applying practical, physical, tangible proof of loyalty to a cause. It's, it's a phrase that, that indicates uh, representation. Uh, it's a phrase for ambassadors. In short, Paul is indicating that since Jesus is no longer on the earth suffering for his bride... Paul is, quote-unquote, filling up what is lacking by suffering on Christ's behalf in a physical way that Christ isn't currently doing. So, so when we apply that mentality to our passage today, we see that Paul is acknowledging that Epaphroditus is being a practical, physical, tangible representation of service to the Philippian church as a sort of ambassador. And Paul is honoring this man by acknowledging the degree to which he is valuing others more than himself. He, he nearly died to represent the Philippian service to Paul. And Paul calls that the work of Christ. Back in Philippians 2, verse 29 and 30 again. Hopefully you saved your spot, but if you didn't, I'll give you a second. Uh, back in Philippians 2, verses 29 and 30. So receive him in the Lord and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me as a representation so here's the main practical takeaway today this is the this is the main point honor such men i'm using the word men here in the way of, of humans, don't worry, ladies, we're not excluding you from this particular <laughs> interaction here. Uh, biblically speaking, men get to be the bride of Christ. Uh, women get to be sons of God. And, and today, in this case, uh, such men. Um, so in order for us to honor such men, there are two things we need to know. First of all, how do we recognize such men? What do they look like? And number two, what do we do to honor such men? And there are a few characteristics that we see Paul rejoicing over when he looks at the life of Epaphroditus. And I'm going to put these into four 
categories, these characteristics into four categories. Epaphroditus, according to Paul, is a brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, and a minister to Paul's need. And we'll actually just start with that last one as we've pretty much already addressed it, um, a minister to Paul's need. When, when Paul says that Epaphroditus is a messenger and minister to his need, he's talking about this practical gift that Epaphroditus brought. Uh, he, he brought an update on the church in Philippi to Paul and probably food and money and other supplies all the way, again, all the way from Philippi to Rome. And then he's bringing this letter, the book of Philippians, back on behalf of Paul to Philippi. Messenger, minister to need. Um, and also there's an emotional need that's being met here as we see throughout the passage. So that one's, that one's pretty direct. Uh, we don't have to spend a whole awful lot of time on that. But what about these other three things? Epaphroditus is Paul's brother. And we use this phrase frequently at Freshwater. We are a church family. We, we, we are united in Christ. We've been adopted as sons. But the, significant, the true significance of this title is, is really, really enormous. And yes, it's, it's nice to think of ourselves as a family in like this social, emotional sense. That, that's a huge part of it, and, and that's very important. But, but remember this. God revealed himself to the whole world through a biological family. God revealed himself to Abraham and made a nation from his offspring. This nation would later be known as, as Israel, and, and the people of God at that point were literally all brothers, sisters, cousins, aunts, uncles, fathers, mothers. They were, they were literally family. To them, this kind of speech is, is literal. And Epaphroditus was almost certainly uh, not Hebrew, wasn't from Israel biologically. He was almost definitely what we call a Gentile, it means not Jewish. His name literally means from or belonging to Epaphrodite. For those of you not familiar, that's a, that's a Greek goddess. Not many Hebrew people would have named their kid after a pagan deity, a Greek, a Greek deity. <laughs> so this title of brother is, is enormous. It's huge. Like there, there's, there's, we can't gloss over this. So yes, it literally just means Christian in, in most figures of speech now in, and especially in the epistles, but but it's, it's very, very significant. In fact, of course, we shouldn't gloss over being a Christian. It's, it's a great and beautiful thing to be. And Paul also says Epaphroditus is a fellow worker. And this one's a bit different. Fellow worker isn't merely a, a, a title that is bestowed upon people. Brother, brother is. It's an identity that's given to someone when Christ unites them to himself. Fellow worker is more a descriptor of actions. So Epaphroditus is a man that Paul sees putting in the work, obviously. I mean, obviously this guy is putting in the work. Uh, you don't get to say that someone's not putting in the work when they take a 700-mile trip to bring you some supplies. So, um, But I think that, that Paul would say that there's a more important work that Epaphroditus has done and is doing. Let's not forget, Paul is sending him back to Philippi. And he's doing that for, for a multitude of reasons. I mean, yes, Epaphroditus loves this church, and, and Paul doesn't want them to be worried. And also, Paul is shedding a bit of personal anxiety himself by sending him back. But 
another important reason is that he is, remember, he's an example of what Paul wants the church to learn and to be. To that end, Epaphroditus is doing the work that Paul isn't able to do himself at the time. If you look at it this way, Epaphroditus is filling up what's lacking in Paul's, in Paul's work, as the, in the same way as he was filling up what was lacking in the Philippian church's work. And, and what is that work that Paul's doing? It's selfless service. Paul starts this letter off by referring to himself and Timothy as slaves of Christ, servants of Christ. Slaves at this point in history weren't identical to the slaves of, of America or, or any of the more, more modern examples of slavery, but, but they were still servants who were bound to the will of their master. And that's how Paul describes his relationship to Christ. If you will, that's, that's his occupation. So, by extension, if you're his fellow worker, if you're his co-worker, that's your occupation. Paul sees that, that Epaphroditus, as his fellow worker, has divine humility as a slave to Christ. And he wants him to share that with the Philippian church while he's stuck there in prison. So it's, it's not only that he's a Christian brother, he's also an example of the character of Christ that's worthy of replicating as a fellow worker to Paul. And then Paul adds another layer of intensity by referring to Epaphroditus as a fellow soldier. And this is a good one. This one's probably my favorite. On the one hand, the imagery here is pretty similar to, to a slave in the time period. I mean, both soldiers and slaves are people who are meant to follow orders that they're given. They're both, they're both under the control of an authority. They're both, they're both a set of workforces. The, the major difference here is between soldiers and slaves, is, is soldiers go to war. They fight, and they go into it knowing that it will cost them something and that it may well cost them everything. Yes, a slave labors, and a soldier suffers. This is, we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 here real quick. If you, if you want, you can look at it in the, in the Helping Hands app, or if you know where you're going, you just go right a few pages here, probably 15, 20. It is in my Bible anyway. Um, 2 Timothy, if you're 1 Timothy, you're not far enough. If you're Titus, you've gone too far. Um, but this is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul also wrote this letter, and he wrote it to Timothy, whom we just referenced earlier in the, in the chapter. This is what Paul thinks of when he thinks of being a soldier for Christ. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The soldier's, the soldier's aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And, and the cost of doing that is not relevant to the soldier. The soldier doesn't refuse an order because of what it, of what it may cost him. 
How often, how often do we do that? Do we get presented with opportunities to follow Christ and the work of the gospel, but refuse to act, maybe, because, well, God wouldn't want me to suffer. The soldier doesn't think that way. A slave of Christ shouldn't think that way. And a brother wouldn't think that way. And I know we all think that way at times. And, and later in Philippians, Paul admits that he's also still imperfect. We all think that way at times, but, but when we look at Epaphroditus, this is one of the major reasons why he's so worth honoring. If a soldier is told to go 700 miles to bring supplies to an imprisoned fellow soldier, he does that. He, know, he knows he's going to suffer. He knows it will hurt. He, he knows he might die. But he follows, still follows the orders. And the thing is, there, there's no record of God visiting Epaphroditus or anyone else in a dream and telling the church of Philippi to gather up some supplies and take it to Paul. There's no record of that. I, I genuinely believe that this act was done to share this characteristic of Christ. Epaphroditus is following an order that wasn't given directly to him, but he knows it's for him. Jesus gave this order in John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. That's John 15, verses 12 and 13. I'll give you a minute to turn there. Or if you have the app, that'll help out a bit with time. But John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. John 15, 12, and 13, Jesus says this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Okay, great. Well, if you stop there, then, then that's awesome. That's, that's easy enough, right? But Jesus goes on. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That is an order from the king of the universe. That's, that's his commandment. Love one another as he loved you, which is enough to die on your behalf. Epaphroditus understood this, and, and he showed that in a very clear way. And, and Paul wants the church in Philippi to honor such men. Well, yeah, that, that makes sense, but what, what does that mean? What does that, what does that look like? In the Greek, this phrase, honor such men, is split up like this. Echo means hold. Toyotos means such men. And then intimos is most often translated as precious or lovely or desirable. Value such men. Hold such men as precious. Hold them as dear. Care for them. Long for them. Honor such men. And here's the practical charge I want to give to us, Freshwater Church, this morning. I, I pray that we could all, of course, be such men and women as Epaphroditus, while, and this was important, while simultaneously honoring such men and women, that is, each other. Sin, sin has affected our way of thinking. Because of sin, 
The flesh wants to ensure our own needs are met by, by meeting them ourselves. The, the idea here is that, oh, if everyone looks out for themselves, then everyone will have their needs met, right? Well, obviously, there, there are many problems with that line of thinking. First and foremost, number one, being that it's different than God's way of thinking, and that, that should be enough. But if you want to go practically, there are many who can't look after their own needs. And, and many others whose selfishness leads to their needs being met at the expense of others. But God's way is different. God's way involves treating others as more significant than yourself. And that can be scary. What, what if my needs don't get met? If I'm treating others as more significant than me, what about, it's possible my needs won't get met. But remember, we're to be soldiers. There will be times when our needs don't all get met. In this life, we will have trouble. But imagine if there's a hundred of us, right? And each one of us is holding the other 99 as more significant than ourselves, as more precious, as more worthy of good things. What if, what if everyone is so intent on loving each other with that ferocity that we'd all have our needs met? And, and we have a perfect example of how that plays out, in fact, actually, in, in the Trinity itself. Earlier in chapter 2 of Philippians, if you want to start turning back there, Philippians chapter 2, early on in, the, in that chapter, Paul gives a very specific example of how the members of the Trinity honor each other. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Uh, Paul reminds us very practically of that example. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus starts up here and submits and therefore, God, that is the Father, has highly exalted him. So lifting him back up and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus and the Father are showing us how to interact with each other. It's almost as if there's this race to the bottom, so to speak, even within the Trinity, Jesus honors the Father by elevating the Father's will above his own and becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Then the Father honors his Son by giving him the name that is above every name. Epaphroditus is taking a leaf straight out of God's playbook. Paul says, you know what? I would literally die for you guys in Philippi. And Epaphroditus says, nope, I'm not going to let that happen. And then he risks his life to save Paul's. And Paul has already said that he's fine with dying. He even debates letting it happen. But the kingdom of God is to be filled with people who are elevating each other over themselves in, this, in these extreme ways. In fact, in the most extreme ways imaginable. But being honest with ourselves, there's, there's probably nobody here, very, or if there are very few, that have had to debate between dying and serving a brother in Christ. Right? 
And I, I'm a bit embarrassed to say, but I have to admit that there are ways where I have to put in effort to be a soldier for Christ when the stakes are objectively just much lower. <laughs> uh, I am, by, by my human nature, somewhat introverted. That is to say, uh, it, it costs me energy to have social interactions. Um, I, honestly, I actually have to fight with myself sometimes to, to attend church meetings or, or events or what have you. Uh, thank God he gives me energy and the ability to, to overlook that and, and do these things in spite of how I feel. Um, but if I'm being honest, I do have to fight to do both corporate worship like here this morning and life group on the same day of the week. Uh, and, and when I look at Epaphroditus almost dying to deliver supplies to a, a, a single man who is admittedly on the fence about how cool it would be to die, like, I, I, feel, I feel two things simultaneously. I feel grieved, and I feel encouraged. The, the Holy Spirit that's inside of Paul, that's inside of Timothy and Epaphroditus, is the same Holy Spirit that's inside of you and me, church, if, if you are a Christian. It's so encouraging to know that, that this Holy Spirit can, can encourage a man to cross half of the known world for a package delivery. And I'm, I'm not trying to minimize what Epaphroditus did. It's very important, and it, obviously Paul greatly appreciated it, but, but to elevate another person's comfort over your own life kind of seems a little insane, right? Like it's kind of out, out there. But at the same time, while I'm encouraged, I, I also feel grieved. Why, why do I struggle against discomfort when there have been men willing to give up everything for even the slightest of benefit for another? In times like these, I'm reminded of what Paul said to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. In this letter to the church in Corinth, Paul is referencing the church's response to his previous letter in which he, he kind of lets them have it, really. He, he really addresses some, some sin issues, some deep sin issues. And later, in response, really, to their response, so he writes in this letter, and then they write a letter back, and he responds to them. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it for... I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. And as I think 
of Epaphroditus, Timothy, Paul, Christ, and their wonderful examples of the love of God. Truly, I'm, I'm grieved to repentance. And I want to bring up some things this morning that we as a church might be letting get in the way of divine humility. We're treating others as more important than ourselves and honoring such men, honoring each other as Epaphroditus honors Paul, as Christ honors us, as the Trinity honors itself. I'm asking you genuinely, please reflect with me as I go through this list. I hope if it brings any grief at all, that it's godly grief that leads to repentance. Church, there's no condemnation for us here, but let's take this seriously. Do you find that you're valuing your time above the needs of others? Is your free time a precious resource for you? Of course, of course it is, but is it more precious to you than your brothers and sisters? Do you, do you find that you're inclined to miss out on things like life group or discipleship or Sunday service or any other events because, man, that's my only free day this week? Or maybe you have other good and godly things that you're doing to, to make you miss out on these church events. I'm not telling you that if you, I'm not telling you have to be absolutely everything our church puts on in order to be righteous, but, but be honest with yourself, please. Are you prioritizing your free time above your brothers and sisters? The world says, good, your time is your own. Spend it how you see fit. The gospel tells us to value each other more than ourselves. What ought to be true is that, from my perspective, everyone is more significant than me. And from your perspective, everyone is more significant than you. So, so why... Why would I want to use my free time for me when I could use it for, for God and for, and for you all? That's much more significant, or at least that's how our outlook should be. Or are you valuing your money over your brothers and sisters? What about your quote-unquote financial stability? Do you find that you're in a time of your life in which giving to the church isn't a thing you're doing? Because, just because you want to make sure that you're making ends meet. Are, are you trying to take control of your own financial security? Are you trusting your own financial prowess over the wisdom of God? He knows how to deal with physical things. He knows how to deal with money. So if he says to give until it hurts, we need to do that. Are, are you trying to be Self-sufficient? Stop. <laughs> let, let, us, let us help take care of you as, as you help take care of us. Let us take care of each other. Relinquish control over your money. Letting go will bring you freedom. The world says, that's foolish. It's real dumb. <laughs> you, can't, you can't trust anyone but yourself with your money. And why would you want to? You work for that. It's your money. God disagrees. It's his money. Everything's his. <laughs> and if he says to let go of it, or to let go of the idea that, that you control your own money, that's what you ought to do. 
Are you prioritizing social comfort over your brothers and sisters? Is your brother in sin, but you really don't like conflict, so you think it's best to leave it alone? Is having an awkward conversation more unpleasant than watching a beloved sister in Christ walk down the path of sin? Or on the other side of the same coin, do you avoid people that you really just don't get along with? Do you value your peace of mind and quiet living over community with your brothers and sisters? The world says, live and let live. As long as they're out of your sight or you can ignore them, you don't need to talk to them. The word of God, however, says that we need to build each other up and protect each other from sin and temptation. And yes, that includes that person that you might not like that much. The reason I bring all these things up specifically is that these issues in particular have a tendency to sneak up on us in this day and age. We want to use the word wisdom to kind of morph what God is telling us to do into something a little bit more comfortable and manageable. There's there's a tendency for us to make our faith individualized or self-sufficient and safe. But there's simply not room for that in the gospel. The gospel commands that we be a community together of suffering soldiers that rely on God and trust one another for our needs to be met. We need to serve each other at the cost of our own wants, our comfort, and really if it comes down to it, our very lives. We're to honor each other and lift each other up. Looking to God as our example, we we need to diminish our own self-importance for the elevation of one another. In humility, we are to treat others as more significant than ourselves. That's what Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus are giving us examples of. As we close, please, please be in prayer. It might not have been one of those things that I mentioned for you. Be in prayer over the ways that you might not be letting go of things that you find more important than the men and women of our church? What, what are you honoring more than godly men and women? Mourn over the things that have gotten in the way of honoring each other. And then rejoice that the Holy Spirit lives in you and is shaping you to be a brother or a sister that serves the church. If you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, that Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is in you. So let any godly grief you may be experiencing today lead you to repentance so you can grow in him. I'm doing this myself this morning. I know there are ways that I act in which I'm showing that I value myself over others in a certain way. So please join me in repenting and turning toward Christ and the example he gives. May we follow Christ with the same selfless fervor that Epaphroditus had. Let's pray together and ask the Lord shed light on areas of our life that are holding us back from being brothers or workers, fellow soldiers, and ministers to each other to the glory of God in Christ and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.